0: 1 Corinthians 15, and it's subtitled, The Resurrection of the Dead. But if it is preached that Christ, who has been raised from the dead, how how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has, has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ we are all of people most to be pitied. But Christ is indeed being raised from the dead, and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then he who comes. Those who belong to him and then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, to king, the, the God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power for he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself, who has put everything under Christ. When he has done, it is the Son himself will be made subject to him, who will be put, put everything under, under him so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are the people baptised for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? The dead are not raised. Let us eat And drink, and for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this is to your shame. So is the word of the Lord. Were you as puzzled by that as I was?
1: Well, we might be puzzled, but we won't be puzzled in a moment because Rachel is going to come and tell us all about it, aren't you, Rachel? (laughs) Okay, you grab that one. Could I pray for you before you uh, begin? Father God, we thank you so much uh, for Rachel, um, for the work that she's done through this week, and we know that your Holy Spirit has been speaking to her heart and her spirit and uh, Lord what she brings to us today she has prayed over and so we pray that we will do her and the Holy Spirit this good service of uh, paying attention, being awake, listening to what you're saying to us today. Uh, May your grace and confidence be upon Rachel, may she know the power of your Holy Spirit as she uh, speaks out your word this morning. In Jesus name, Amen.
2: Is that one on? Hello, hello. Cool. All right. Hi, everyone. Uh, so, like David said, that's that's a bit of a tricky one. Um, so, um, if it's helpful for you, you might want to have your Bibles open or your phone open to the passage um, as we go through it. Um, all right. so right. I'm going to get started. What do you believe about life after death? Presumably, if you're sitting in a church today or watching it online, Um, you believe that first of all there is life after death Um, but have you thought that much about it have you wondered what it will be like what we will be like is the reality of your own resurrection from the dead something that affects your life now or is it something you keep at a distance maybe just like thinking about our own mortality thinking about our own immortality might feel a little uncomfortable So this morning I'm going to invite you all to get a little uncomfortable uh, because we're diving right into the resurrection. I'm going to spoil the ending a little bit and tell you right now uh, my three points of my sermon, um, the three important things I think we can gather from this passage of Scripture. So firstly, our resurrection follows Jesus. Uh, Secondly, the, the resurrection matters a lot. And number three, the resurrection shapes the way we live our life. Um, Yeah, so let's dive into what Paul's saying. So the first part of this section is a classic bit of Paul logic. I don't know if anyone enjoys Paul's logic, but I do. I think it's pretty cool. Um, So we heard last week from Cam exactly what the gospel, the good news is, that Paul has preached to the Corinthians. Jesus died for our sins, he was raised to life, and he ascended into heaven. Paul says that given this, how can you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And just in case you don't follow the logic there, he says it flipped around. Um, If what they are saying is true, and if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ can't have risen from the dead. Hopefully you can see the logic here. You can't have one resurrection without the other so if resurrection of some people is not possible then the resurrection of any people Jesus included must not be possible Um, hopefully that makes it a little clearer but there's a reason Paul is making this point to the Corinthians as we've seen throughout the letter Paul's been combating elements of the Corinthian culture that have interfered with how they live out their faith They're heavily influenced by Greek thought and philosophy of the time and one idea pervasive in that culture is that the soul holds greater importance than the body and so when the body passes away they believe that only the soul would endure. The idea of Jesus and our physical bodily resurrection is contradictory to the thought of the time. So just as that's true for Paul's first century audience, there's also a variety of views and doubts about the resurrection in our society today. Though it's a different kind of scepticism. It's less about philosophy and more about science. There's this disbelief in the plausibility of the resurrection, both for non-Christians and for some Christians as well, as our culture grows more and more sceptical of the miracles of the Bible. When it comes to scepticism about Jesus' full-body resurrection, it's helpful to look at what the Bible actually says. In the gospel accounts of Jesus' movements after the resurrection, he was able to touch and be touched. He broke bread, he ate it, and he appeared to the disciples as flesh and blood. There's going to be a more comprehensive discussion of full bodily resurrection next week um, by Sarah. So um, I'm not going to delve too much into what that actually looks like today. But what Paul seems to be addressing for the Corinthians is not a denial of the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, but rather this separation between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection in the future. Paul puts forth this logic argument to explain that because of the account of Jesus' resurrection, we can and should expect the same for our own future resurrection. For his argument, Paul uses the term firstfruits, to explain the relationship between the resurrection of Jesus and ours, saying in verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, personally, I'm not a farmer or much of a gardener, um, so this me- metaphor wasn't super relatable for me at first, but I had a bit of a firstfruits moment last week. Um, I saw there were some mangoes at Woolies um, and decided it was time for me to have my first mango of the summer. Yeah, I know, so good. (laughs) Um, So it was juicy, it was sweet, and it made me think of all the excellent mangoes I'll get to eat in the next few months. See, the first fruits are literally the first fruits of the harvest, meaning however beautiful-looking and tasting they are is a sign of what the entire harvest will be. If you pick off that first mango, and it's a whole, ripe mango free of blemishes – Uh, then that's what you expect of all the other mangoes. So, as you can imagine, if that first mango was whole, physical, you could touch it, you could eat it, um, and then you expect that every mango that follows will be a metaphysical mango that you can't eat or touch, um, then that might be kind of silly. So Paul says our expectation of our resurrected life will be what Jesus also experienced um, and, sh- and what he showed us. The two cannot be separated and considered as different things because Jesus' resurrection is the proof and the example of what we'll expect ourselves. So our resurrection will follow Jesus. Uh, now we're going to move on to the second point, which is that um, the resurrection matters a lot and we'll look into why that is. So Paul's logic argument goes on to show that there's two major consequences if the resurrection were not true. He says in verses 16 and 17, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. No resurrection of any dead people means there is no resurrected saviour, which means we are not saved from sin and death. If the resurrection were not true, then our faith is not just nonsensical, it's futile. Paul leaves no room for us or the Corinthians to be in denial or even on the fence about the fact of the resurrection. There is a resurrection and more than that, there must be a resurrection in order for our faith and for Paul's preaching to make sense. If there was no resurrection, we as Christians are to be pitied if we were to put our hope in Jesus just for the present, just for this life because the whole package that Jesus talks about, the kingdom of God, is not fully realised here in this life on this earth and living as Jesus lived, putting himself in danger, getting to know the hurt and broken people of the world, not caring about wealth or power or earthly possessions and dying like a common criminal just doesn't make a whole lot of sense if this life on earth is all there is. Uh, The second consequence that Paul notes is in verse verse 18, sorry. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If Jesus' death, defeat of death had not been completed, then everyone who previously put their trust in him during life won't be around for the second coming of Jesus, and they're just plain dead. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is speaking to some Sadducees who, Mark tells us, don't believe in the resurrection. Jesus says that they're wrong and that they don't know their scriptures. Ouch. Um, He says, now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, sorry, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. You were badly mistaken. For God's character, God's plan and God's promises to make sense. Those faithful people in the Old Testament who God had brought to himself and who he made promises to have to be alive with him. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And if the dead are not raised, as Paul said, everyone in the story so far who have fallen asleep would be lost. Are you guys with me so far? (laughs) Understandably, we're not all convinced by logic. Um, And some people would find this way of talking that Paul was using a bit confusing. Um, So luckily for us, Paul decides to keep communicating why the resurrection is important in a couple of more ways. So this next section, verses 20 to 28, gives more backing to the importance of Christ's resurrection and what that means for his people. I find this part quite exciting uh, because, see, at the moment my Bible study group are moving through books of the Old Testament and we're kind of moving through them quickly and looking at the key themes that are going on. Uh, In this section, Paul shows us a couple of the threads um, of the story. So he says that death came through one man, Adam, and because of this one man, disobeying God way back in the Garden of Eden, all will die. With Adam's choice, sin entered the world and so did the consequence of sin, death, physical and spiritual death. In Romans 5, sorry, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Here we are, however many thousand years since Adam made the wrong choice, and we are still being ruled by death. Whatever we might be capable of through the Holy Spirit and through our faith in Jesus, here on this earth we are limited by the fact that we all die. Death is still the only option. And if you think about it, death is really horrible. I think sometimes we can be a bit desensitised to death or have a bit of an ambivalent attitude towards it. Since, you know, we all die. Uh, No use crying about it. But the Bible tells us death is the enemy. Sorry. (laughs) Um, So death is the enemy. It's horrible. It creates sadness, division, loss of faith, devastation to families, pain. God does not like death. And the plan is for death to be defeated once and for all. For death to be defeated... As we know, from Adam, everyone will sin and everyone will die. So what's needed is for God to intervene. And thankfully, God did do something 2,000-ish years ago. And we'll get into how that affects death in just a moment. But first, I want to look at where we fit within God's plan and God's story. Um, In the book called God's Big Picture... Sorry, big fun diagram that you probably can't see very well. But anyway... um, By Vaughan Roberts is the book. Um, He tracks the theme of God's kingdom throughout the whole story of the Bible. I find it helpful to see this diagram. Um, It's quite busy, but it does show how, through the timeline of the Bible, our relationship with God, which is kind of the line that goes from the top at Eden, plummets down, and then tries to climb back up. So, that line there, our relationship with God, how it was broken back in the Garden of Eden and could not be fully restored throughout the Old Testament until Jesus' coming. Hopefully you can see the birth of Christ kind of brings it right back up um, and then his death and resurrection. Anyway, so I want to draw your attention to the section after Jesus' resurrection and after Pentecost um, and before Jesus' second coming. So somewhere between the event, oh, sorry. Yeah, Jesus' second coming, which we are still waiting for. Roberts calls this period the proclaimed kingdom and the purpose of this gap before Jesus finishes restoring God's kingdom and defeating death is so that we might proclaim Christ to those who don't yet believe and bring more people to him. God's kingdom has arrived on earth but it is not fully realized yet for the final defeat of death is still to come. It's now but also not yet. So why is this important to know? I think because it shows us what kind of kingdom context we're living in. I've heard a description before that we're living life between two poles, which is um, the arrow on the left and the arrow on the right between Jesus' resurrection and Judgment Day, when our full physical resurrection will take place. Judgment Day, also same thing as Jesus' second coming, just so you know. Um, And then we're also living between two other poles, which is the dotted line in the middle, which is our spiritual resurrection, our kind of partial resurrection, and then our physical resurrection, the one on the right. Because Jesus has been resurrected, it's a promise and a proof that we can put our trust in Jesus, that he will completely defeat death. In verses 24 to 27, it says, Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. The Bible commentator Gordon Fee explains this passage like this. Thus for Paul, there is a divine necessity to the resurrection of the dead, since that alone is the evidence of the final overthrow of the last enemy. Death itself. Christ's resurrection, therefore, also set in motion the defeat of death, the final form of which is the overpowering of its stranglehold on humanity in the form of resurrection. When that occurs, that is, when the final enemy is defeated through resurrection, then God becomes all in all. So we are living in the time of the proclaimed kingdom after Jesus has brought the kingdom of God to earth, but it's not fully realized. We're living before the overthrow of death, yet we are assured of a resurrected life with Christ. I don't know about you, um, but when I stop and really think about this, I find it quite mind-boggling. No wonder we tend to shy away from the reality of the resurrection. It's so far removed from our daily worries on this earth. It's a future where God is all in all, with Jesus having defeated death and brought everything under God's rule. And we're not quite able to experience it yet. So what do we do in this middle time? So going back to the diagram, um, earlier I mentioned that we're under the curse of death and this curse includes both a spiritual as well as a physical death. In Ephesians chapter 2 it says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then in Colossians 3 it says since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. All right, hang on. So you might be thinking, wow, Rachel, you just spent all this time talking about how I'm not resurrected yet. Uh, So what is this new life that we're talking about? So this is our spiritual life, that little dotted line going up. So because of Jesus Jesus' resurrection, we are saved from our sins and we have died to our old self and have been raised spiritually for now with Christ. This is what happens when we give our lives to Christ, when we're baptised and really receive the Holy Spirit. And this new spiritual life is just a taste of what's to come when Christ returns and we are fully resurrected. All right, so given all of this, how are we supposed to live? The final section of Paul's argument that we're looking at today is verses 29 to 34, which rather than appeal to the logic of the resurrection is asking what the point of certain practices are if there's no resurrection. Basically, if there's no resurrection, Paul says, why should I live like this and why should I tell you to live like this? He uses a quote to prove his point. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that quote is from Isaiah chapter 22 verse 13. uh, And it occurs at a point where the Israelites are defending a city that they know they'll soon lose to the Assyrians. Isaiah is lamenting because he has told the people what's coming, and God, communicating through Isaiah, calls his people to repentance. His people are facing death, and instead of taking it seriously and turning to God for forgiveness and preparing themselves for a new life, they give in to every sinful urge they have as they figure it won't make a difference anyway. Basically, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die is an old-timey way of saying YOLO, For those who aren't familiar with the lingo that was cool in about 2010, um, YOLO stands for you only live once. And so, if you only live once, why not enjoy every minute? Or as Paul says, why on earth would you risk your life wrestling wild boars? Or saying things that get you arrested? Or worrying about the salvation of people who have already died? If there's no resurrection, there's no need to do anything that won't feel good in the moment. You should get rich, retire young and have fun. Eat and drink and indulge yourself for tomorrow or next year or in 50 years, we all die. But that's not the truth. Isaiah told the Israelites what was coming back then and we're so privileged now to know that Jesus has already come and won the war against sin and death. The resurrection can and should change the way we live now. If we place our hope in the resurrection, in the promise offered by Jesus' resurrection, we can live a life focused on what matters, uh, sorry, on what will matter for eternity. So I've said a lot of things today. Um, It's probably all a bit much. Um, So I think to help guide us about where this leaves us as Christians responding to what Paul says about the resurrection, I'm going to pose three questions to us. So number one. Are you convinced of your resurrection? Are you separating Jesus' resurrection from your own? Or are you sceptical even of Jesus' resurrection? Are you not sure that it's going to happen? Or not sure that you like the idea of having your body when you die? After you die, sorry. I think if that is any of you, um, for starters, uh, make sure you tune in for next week uh, when we talk about the resurrection body with Sarah. Um, And have a little read around Uh, Have a look at what the Bible says, at what people who explain the Bible say. Uh, If what you doubt is the resurrection of Jesus, I'd encourage you to look at some historical Christian writers um, to see what the evidence is. I personally believe that having doubts as a Christian uh, is a healthy thing uh, as long as you're doing something with them. Chat to people, uh, join a Bible study, listen to podcasts, whatever is the way that you like to learn. Uh, In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says to always be prepared to give an answer for if anyone asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Being a Christian is not about blind faith, uh, but it's about hope grounded in the gospel, in what the scriptures say, in who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, Number two, what do you put your hope in that won't last? Alrighty, here's the big one. Where is your hope There's a staggering amount of stuff in this life that we have and experience that are eternally worthless. In 2013, I attended a conference on the resurrection and to date that's probably the most I've ever learnt in five days uh, and I think it was really important in shaping me as a Christian. Not only was it mind-blowing to learn about the resurrection and what it means, but it was a challenge to the way I was living. I was a Christian, yes, but I was also a uni student uh, and so my goals were mostly along the lines of study hard, make friends, have a successful career, and travel. One of the things I found challenging back then, and still do now, is the challenge of, um, sorry, is the challenge to putting my hope in success. I think when we look around us, uh, we see that a lot of people do put their hope in success. I want to ask you to put on your resurrection glasses your eternal lenses, and through that lens of an eternal life with Jesus, what good is success in your career or studies or hobbies? I want to ask, what would your family or your friends or your boss think of you if you decided to take Wednesdays off so you could come and volunteer at a playgroup? What would they think if you took a lower-paying job to spend more time discipling your kids? What would they think if you quit a hugely successful job for a big four accounting company to do a ministry traineeship and support yourself only with financial help from your friends and family. That last one is pretty specific because that's actually a friend of mine who did that Um, and a lot of people thought she was insane including her parents but for her sharing the gospel meant so much more than earning the big bucks as an economist. I personally have learned a lot, of peop- a, lot of, yeah, a lot of things from people such as her and I find I'm constantly challenged by what I see from faithful servants of Jesus making choices in this life to pursue Jesus' goals, not their own earthly ones. My last question is how can you live a life shaped by the resurrection? So I've talked a bit about changing our perspective and putting on these eternal resurrection glasses To see our lives as God intended, which is to spend eternity with him. I want to remind you about this time we're living in between Jesus' resurrection and judgment day, when the final defeat of death will occur and our own physical resurrection will happen. The time of the proclaimed kingdom, as Roberts puts it, where our eternally significant job is the Great Commission, uh, which is where Jesus asked us to make disciples of all nations. Coincidentally, that's what we do here at the Billabong, being and making disciples, Um, So that is our goal. That is our eternally significant goal. It's about the people and bringing people to Christ. And there are lots of ways that we do that. Uh, Even though I talked about not putting your hope in earthly things, that doesn't mean that we should all quit our jobs um, or that we should all become pastors and missionaries, um, although you absolutely should if God leads you that way. Um, We still need to live and work and survive in this imperfect world before Jesus comes back. We just have to keep those eternal glasses on and always put our hope in the resurrection. Part of the implications of focusing on the resurrection is found in the last verse of the passage. Paul says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Uh, The commentator Gordon Fee notes that this verse actually ties the whole resurrection perspective back to the whole letter. Since you are destined for an eternal life with God, stop all these sinful behaviours that we've been talking about. I really like it when everything just kind of fits together. So it's good that it looks back on all of the behaviours that Paul has been trying to correct. So once again, I'm going to quote from Colossians. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The way we live should be as if we were already at the end goal, setting our minds on things above, not on earthly things, showing the fruits of the Spirit and running away from temptation and sin. And when we do, when we focus on the resurrection goal – we get a little bit of a taste of what's to come. Uh, One thing I've heard Mark Ellingworth say at a couple of camps, um, when leading a young adult camp, uh, he said how he loved being in a room of Christians from a variety of backgrounds, worshipping and discovering God together, and it was like a little taste of the new creation. And it is. It can be wonderful to experience. And a couple of weeks ago, David... um, spoke in church about how um, being at a church gathering of Shalom House with all the men, um, how it felt like the roof was lifting off the building and that, yeah, like that sounded like it was a taste of the new creation as well. Um, So these are just tastes. They're small examples of the joy that is to come when there's no more death or pain or tears, when we can live with Christ and praise him forever. This is what we put our hope in. This is what we long for. It says in Romans 8 that the whole creation groans and we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. This groaning is a longing for what is to come, an eternity that we know will be free from the pain caused by sin and death. And we shouldn't shy away from this glorious future. We should focus our lives on the reality of what's to come because that can transform our lives. Uh, One of the notes I wrote from the resurrection conference I attended was this. So live with hope, overflowing with hope. Embed into your life the reality of your resurrection. Embed this truth by coming back to scripture. And when life is tough, remember there's more to come. When life is good, remember there's so much better to come. So I pray for all of us today that we'd be overflowing with hope, that we'd embed this truth, and then we'd remember that there is more to come. In Jesus' name, amen.